I'll tell you something strange about me. How much time you got? No, I'm just kidding. I love tools. I mean, I, I get excited about hardware. I really do. Uh, do, do I remember years ago when Sears used to send out these great catalogs. Do you remember that? And, and it, it seemed like there was a different one every week. You got one in your mailbox. And, and then they'd emphasize different things. One of them would be about appliances, and one would be about uh, furniture, and one would be the clothes, you know, those tough skin jeans that uh, never wore out. And, and you, you passed them down through like 16 family members. And, but one of them was, was the tool catalog. And when I was a kid, that, I would look at that and I would just dream about the, the 250-piece or the 500-piece or the 1,000-piece tool set. <sighs> Still love to go to hardware stores, Lowe's and Home Depot and Menards and just walk around and look. And here's why that's strange. Because I'm one of the most unhandy people who's ever lived. That's absolutely the truth. Yeah, my wife's back there giving me an amen. She sits back there and says nothing 50 weeks out of the year, and then today she. I, I have got the most pitiful collection of tools you ever saw. I mean, I've got like. I have promotional tools. You know, they say Marlboro or something like that on them. I mean, it's stuff you get at the convenience store, right, because you buy something. But I didn't buy Marlboro, so don't get all upset about that. And I've got like a spoon, and uh, you know, that, because a spoon can be used as a screwdriver. And, and I, it's true. And I can't fix anything. I can't. And my biggest problem is that my projects never go in a linear manner. My projects never go step one, step two, step three, done. Never. There's always that step where I break something. Usually the most important piece in the whole project. There's that step where I join two pieces together that physically it is impossible for those two pieces to go together. And then there's the step, it's like a step B where I have to back up through two or three of the steps. Half the project has to come undone because I did something that was wrong. That's the kind of handyman I am. And 28 years ago, the Lord brought two men into my life Two men who can fix anything. My father-in-law and my brother-in-law. <laughs> and absolutely. And I don't think they know how intimidated I am, <laughs> how appreciative I am, and how envious I am of the gift that they have. I can't tell you how many times I've said, just in conversation, sitting around the table with my father-in-law. Well, this, this thing is not working. And, and you know, and he, he kind of said, well, what is, did it sound like this? And did it look like this? And he'll say, well, it's this. And sure enough, that's what it is. I just can't get over how somebody can do that. I thought we were having fun in here. And here's what I know. I could own that dream tool set. I mean, I could, I could have that dream toolbox, all the tools arranged in alphabetical order by name, and then subclassified by size, and further subclassified by purpose. 
I can have the little pegboard with the, you know, the little chalk body outlines of all the tools so you know exactly where they go back when you're finished with them. I can have a little Rolodex with cards for each tool that tells what it is and when it was used and what it was used for. But if I don't put those tools to work, if I don't use them, they're useless. Might as well not have them. Buying tools, believing in tools, telling other people how great tools are, even understanding exactly how tools work does absolutely no good until we do what? Use the tools, until we put the tools to work. It's that way with any product that we buy. We can believe in it. We, can, we spend our money on it. We can tell others how great it is. We can understand how it works. We may even sell it. But it won't do any good unless we use it, unless we put it to work. 2,000 years ago, James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, recognized that there were some Christians who had purchased the product. They owned the product. They believed in the product. In fact, a lot of them every week would go to a special place where they would have a a lesson where they would learn a little bit more about the, the product and how to use it and how great it was and how it should work, but they had never put the product to work. They'd never put it to use. And so he writes a letter. And he writes primarily to Jewish believers, people who had, had grown up as, in the Jewish faith tradition but had come to place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah and their Lord. And he tells, he's talking to people who have a long-standing, deep-rooted knowledge of and relationship with God. And here's what he says. Folks, it's time that you begin to use this faith that you're so proud of. It's time to apply this faith that you're excited about. It's time to put to work this faith that you're even taking the risk of telling other people about. And James is really in their face. He's really very abrupt. One thing that you will note about James's uh, book, about his letter, which became a book, is that he, he doesn't, um, there's not a lot of pleasantries here. He kind of gets in their face. And he says, if you don't use your faith for all practical purposes, it's worthless. If you don't apply what you know, it's the same as not knowing it. And faith that is not applied to everyday life is worthless and useless and dead. If faith is going to do us any good, It has to be put to work. Now, we come from a variety of faith backgrounds here. Some of us grew up in a religious tradition that that really emphasized making a decision for Christ, becoming a Christian. I, I grew up in a church where the idea was to send the kids off to camp every summer. And, um, and, And they would really pour it on during camp. I mean, camp was all gospel all the time. And on the last night, oh, you remember the last night at camp, the evangelist, he would just preach his heart out and the music would be all soul and heart stirring and the campfire would be blazing and the idea was for the teenagers to make a decision to trust Christ. 
And we'd do that, and then we'd all run to the phone and call our parents and just cry. Right? Anybody relate to that besides me? Ah, uh, see, I know what t- tradition you came from if you raise your hand on that one. Our parents would be so excited because, see, they saw Christianity and becoming a Christian sort of like catching a disease. And they hoped we would get it, that we'd catch it. Because then they could relax and and they could know that their children would grow up in the Lord. And the adults didn't get left out. Because the church would have revivals to do the same thing for them, right? And they'd bring in some powerful speaker and and he'd preach hell's hot and heaven's not. You may think you are, but you're really not. And, And five sins that will keep you out of heaven and... And the idea was to get people to walk down an aisle and make a decision for Christ. And the Holy Spirit would kind of whoosh in and, and their lives would change. And husbands would be better husbands. And, and moms would be better mothers. And, and it was just supposed to sort of happen to you once you made that decision. But the problem was, it didn't really take with everybody. I mean, about half the teenagers who made a decision at camp, their decision lasted until the van door slammed shut on the way home. And then they, got, they went home and acted just like everybody else. Well, the revival would be over, and the men didn't really become better husbands. The women didn't become better moms. So next summer, you'd get round up all the teenagers again, send them to camp, have a different evangelist. Maybe it would take this time. You know, next year you'd have another revival. Maybe they didn't really mean it. Maybe they just had head faith and not heart faith. Did you ever hear that one? And James would look at all that and say, well, that's not right. Christianity isn't a disease you get and then suddenly, mysteriously, your life changes. That's not how it works. Others of us grew up in a, in a faith tradition where your parents made sure you were baptized as an infant. They, as a little baby, they dressed you up in a little gown. And some of you, your mamas and daddies still have that little gown that they dressed you up with and took you to church that day. And, and uh, some, some preacher took a clamshell and, and poured water on you. And, and, and you were baptized into a church or even into a religion. And the thinking was, if I can get them to the water, something spiritual is going to happen. And and it's going to protect them and preserve them. And when they grow up, they'll be part of the church. They'll they'll go to heaven when they die. And I'm not making fun of that. But infant baptism was supposed to be this great thing that, that, that sort of guarantees the future spiritual development of the child. And again, I think James would say, do what now? Where'd you get that idea? That's not faith. That's not Christianity. And some of us grew up in a faith tradition where the emphasis was all on believing the right things. You've got to make sure you believe the right things. And so the preacher preached doctrinal sermons every week, what we believe about this and why. And the goal was to get everyone to believe correctly. A lot of times in those kind of churches, there was a lot of finger pointing, right? Because first, whatever church across town, they don't believe right on this. They're heretics because they believe that. Or they don't use the right Bible. 
We're the one true correct church because we believe the right things and do things the right way. And So the goal was to get everyone believing the right thing. Didn't seem to be any real life application to it all. But just to get us to believe the right doctrines in the right way. And James would say, that's, that's not it either. I mean, that's part of it. But it's not what faith is all about. That kind of faith where you get it all right and you get the right boxes checked off and you pray the right prayer and you baptize at exactly the right time in the right way will not do you one bit of good unless you apply your faith and put it to use. So we're going to begin our journey through the book of James kind of in the middle. If you've got a Bible with you, you want to turn over to James chapter 2. We're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that reveals the theme of the entire book, a passage that is at the heart of what James is trying to say to us. And let me tell you the challenge for us this morning, for some of us. Not only do we need to interpret a passage of Scripture, for some of us, we need to uninterpret a passage of Scripture. Okay? And you may hear something this morning that makes you go, wait a minute, where'd you get that? And all I'm asking you to do is keep an open mind. Go home and read for yourself. Listen this morning with an open mind because we're going to hear James say this to us this morning. He's going to say, you may believe all the right stuff and you may go to the right church at the right time and you may have prayed the right prayer and been baptized the right way. But if you are not applying your faith, if you're not using your faith in your life, it's not going to do you one bit of good. We'll pick up in James chapter 2, verse 14. And he begins, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Now he's setting the stage for us here. He's asking a question that he thinks everyone can figure out the answer to, right? I mean, he says, what good is it if we say we have faith, but it doesn't show up in the way that we live? Is there any practical good to that at all? And every one of us here would agree that the answer to that question is what? No. He goes on. The second part of the verse there, 14. Can that kind of faith save anyone? And let me tell you that right here is where some of us get stuck. Some of us get stuck here, and this is personally where I part ways with the way a lot of Christians teach and preach from the book of James. Right here. Because whenever we hear the word save or saved, we tend to interpret it without looking at the context. Because we think we know what it means, right? Particularly if I say that word here. I mean, if I'd meet you down at the gas station and say that word, I might mean something else. But if I say it here, we think it means one particular thing, right? Someone walks up to us and says, are you saved, brother? What do we say? Yeah, hallelujah, I'm saved. I put my trust in Jesus and I'm going to be with him over yonder in that sweet heaven someday by and by. But the problem with that is that if we walked up to a person in James' day and said, are you saved? They'd say, from what? Saved from what? Because when James wrote this book, get this now, this is going to help you. This is going to set some of you free. It's going to confuse some of you. It might make one or two of you mad, but that's okay. It's going to make the rest of us free. When James wrote this book, there was no theological connotation to the words save or saved. 
They didn't understand it like we understand it, that modern evangelical Christians understand that word. James uses that word four times in this book, and not a single time does it have the evangelical Christian modern-day understanding of that word attached to it. They used it like we use it when we say, well, he saved the game. Or this book saved my marriage. Or my work on this project saved my job. That's how they use the word. And when we use it that way, save means to preserve or protect from harm something that is important to us. James is setting us up to consider this question. Can faith that is not not lived every day Faith that is not consistently applied to every aspect of our lives. Can that faith save, preserve, protect anything in our lives? Will a husband or wife who believe the right doctrines, and and they've prayed the right prayers, and they've been baptized the right way, but they make no application to their lives what the Bible says about marriage, will that kind of faith preserve and protect and save their marriage? Will that kind of faith make them good mates or better parents? Absolutely not. Will a family that believes all the right stuff, they they sit together every Sunday on the same row, but Monday through Saturday they don't apply any of the truth of God's Word to how they think and feel and behave. Is that family going to be preserved? Is that family going to be protected? Are their relationships going to be saved? Will that kind of faith save and protect and preserve our finances? Can faith that's never applied preserve our reputation? Can faith that we don't live daily protect us from temptation? We know the answer, don't we? And these questions that James is asking us... They're so important because every one of them is a loving Heavenly Father who's saying, my desire is to preserve and protect those things that are important in your life. I want to protect your life. I want to preserve your future. I want to protect your marriage and your family. That's why I've given you the truth of the Bible to be applied to life. I want to protect your relationships at every level. But faith that does not act is useless. Now, we've got to keep this in mind, too. Again, this will set some of us free. James is not talking about heaven and hell here. That's not the subject of this book. That's where people have run into trouble in the book of James. They've tried to make it about whether or not someone is a Christian. James knows he is addressing believers. He knows he's addressing Christians whose eternal destiny has been settled once and for all time by God through Jesus Christ. What he's telling us is that faith that is not lived and applied on a day-to-day practical basis, cannot save, protect, preserve anything in our lives. Some of us make the mistake of thinking that because we prayed the right prayer, or we believe the right stuff, or we got our names recorded somewhere on a church membership roll, that, that we're in this little spiritual bubble that's just going to kind of float us through life until Jesus comes back. 
But listen carefully. It is the application. It is the use of our faith that preserves us and protects us, that saves our marriages, our relationships, our finances, our reputation, our work, our career. James illustrates that for us. Look in verses 15 and 16. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So after church, someone comes up to, this, comes up to us, and, and we know them. You know, they're a brother or sister in the faith. And they say, you know, this is, uh, man, this is embarrassing. I mean, I... Um, you know, I lost my job a while back, and, and we've had to move and lost the house. And, uh, you know, I've got my wife and my kids here, and you know, we just need some lunch money. And, and as they're telling that story, we tear up. Honey, come here. This is the saddest thing I've ever heard. Bless your heart. Can I pray for you right now? God, please bless them and meet their needs. And Lord, I pray they get some lunch money. Amen. Okay, see you later. Bye. What good is that? What good is that? You know what's wrong with that picture? It isn't a faith problem. You know, we believe their story. We're genuinely concerned for their well-being. Our heart is broken. But what good is all that if we don't help them get something to eat? In the end, we're no different from the person that would say to them, that's just your tough luck. Our knowledge and compassion is useless unless and until it is acted upon. And it's the same in every area of our life. Simply believing the right thing Believing the right stuff with a sincere heart and singing about it and studying it and telling other people about it is useless. It has no value, no practical use unless it is applied. James says as much in verse 17. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. James says there's two kinds of faith. And it's not real faith and fake faith. I I grew up being taught and believing that there was fake faith, right? And that that people who who didn't do certain things and didn't act a certain way, uh, you know, maybe they they listened to certain kinds of music or watched certain things on TV and they were into certain habits. I mean, basically, if a person was into certain kinds of sins, they didn't have real faith. They had fake faith. And man, I... I'd lost a lot of sleep at night worrying about whether I had real faith or fake faith. But that's not what James is saying. He says there's two kinds of faith, but it's not real or fake. It's not head faith or heart faith. It's either living or it's dead. It's alive or it's dead. Every believer has faith. The question is, is our faith living or dead? Dead faith won't do us any good. You know that most of the people I talk to who have just wrecked their lives, I mean just made a big old mess out of life, are Christians? 
They say, I can't understand it. I grew up in church. I was in church all my life. I raised those kids in church. I don't understand this. How could this happen to me? It's very simple. Our biggest regrets in life have very little to do with what we believe and a whole lot to do with what we do. Faith that is not lived, applied on a day-to-day practical basis cannot save, preserve, or protect anything of value in our lives. James says it's dead. It's useless. Now, James knew that was going to be a tough message to hear. It is tough. When I told some people I was going to be preaching through the book of James, they go, whoa, James, wow. Somebody told, and I still don't know what this means, but somebody said, ah, the epistle of straw. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it doesn't sound good, does it? So he does something here. He uses a literary device. He creates an imaginary person who's going who's gonna to argue with him, who's going to object to what he's trying to say here. And the imaginary person shows up in the next couple of verses. And, and, and here's what they say. They say, hold on just a minute, James. I, I know where you're going with this. You're going to say that if we believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, then there's a certain way I have to live my life. And James, don't start telling me how to live my life. Don't tell me how to treat my spouse or raise my kids or or handle my finances. I mean, just because we believe the same doesn't mean we have to act the same, and I can prove it to you. And so this imaginary person in the next two verses is going to make the argument that fact Uh, make an argument against the fact that faith without works is useless. And we need to talk about this. Because some people here feel like the preacher is always up in your business. He keeps talking about my marriage. I think you ought to just talk about Jesus. He keeps talking about how I should handle my finances. I want another Christmas series. I mean, give me cute angels and and sincere shepherds and virgin births and all that. (laughs) Some of you feel uneasy sometimes in here because we talk about very practical things. We talk about how this Bible applies to how we live every day. And so you want to say, hey, we all believe the same thing. Let's just leave it at that. Don't tell me how to run my life. That's none of your business, Pastor. Surely we can believe the same things, but that doesn't mean we have to, uh, that that faith and what we believe has to work itself out in my life the same way it works itself out in someone else's life. Well, get ready if you think that, if you feel that way, because James is going to look you dead in the eye in a minute and say something that very few people ever say to you, bless your little heart, you are wrong. So here's the guy's argument. Here's the imaginary person's argument. It can be a little tough to follow in an English translation. I will give you that, but hang with me here. The first thing that we need to do as we walk through this together to figure it out is we need to see the actual verses a little differently. Most English Bibles make it look like verses 18 and 19 are a dialogue between James and the imaginary debater. I believe that it's one complete statement from the imaginary person arguing against James's point. And we get that, some of this falls into place a little easier. But let's just walk our way through here. Verse 18. 
James says, now someone may argue, there's this imaginary person, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have deeds. They're making up a scenario. They're trying to say that just because we have faith doesn't mean that we will have certain deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have, it, have good deeds? So here they're, they're challenging James. Show me your faith. Well, I can't really show you my faith. Faith is not an object that I can display to you. Imaginary person goes on, I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Now here's the point they're trying to make. That what we do doesn't necessarily reflect what we believe. There's that challenge. Show me some faith. Well, we can't. Well, Now see, you're trying to make this big connection between what we believe and how we live, and I'm telling you they don't necessarily go together. And in fact, I'll prove it to you conclusively. Look at verse 19. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. You believe there's one God, right? Yes, we believe there's one God. Okay, good. So do I. We believe the same thing. Now, I'm going to prove that just because we believe the same thing, it doesn't mean it has to work itself out in the same application. Because watch this, the second half of verse 19. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Here's his point. James, you and the demons believe the same thing. They're terrified. You rejoice. You both believe that there's one God, but the way that you both apply what you believe is totally different. So see, just because we believe the same doesn't mean we have to act the same. So don't go down the road of telling me how to live my life because I can believe the same thing you believe and live my life my way. And you can believe the same thing I believe and live your life your way because I've just proven that everyone's faith doesn't work itself out in the same way. Case closed. Finish your letter. You know how I heard this, this verse when I was a kid scared me to death. Demons believe in God and they're going to hell and you can believe in God and you might go to hell too. But that's not, it's part of this person's argument against James saying that our faith has to be applied, it has to be lived on a daily basis for it to have any practical value or use in our lives. We probably got some of those folks here today. Pastor Scott, I'm, I'm with you. We believe the, the right things about Jesus. But when you start telling me how to live my life, when you start talking about my marriage or how I raise my kids or how I handle my money, you're, you're going too far. I mean, how about we just talk about doctrine and believing and you, live, you, you leave off telling me how to live my life? You don't have to raise your hand or anything. I know you're out there. James is saying you need to understand this. If we don't pay attention to the things God has revealed about how our faith should be applied to the way we live, then our marriage, our relationships, our, our, our life, our finances, our reputation, none of it will be preserved and protected. And you can believe all you want. And you can pray all you want. And you can attend church all you want. You know, some of us want to pray our way out of things we behaved ourselves into. 
I don't think you heard me. We want to pray our way out of things we behaved ourselves into. We want to act like being a Christian means that we shouldn't have to suffer consequences for our actions. And sometimes we pick on the devil. We'll suffer consequences of something we did and say it's the devil's fault. No, it's not. It's your fault. You did it. Now listen, don't take condemnation from that. There's no condemnation. You can take conviction. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. Conviction is how we change things. Conviction is what moves us to repent. We've been going this way. There's the cliff. Uh Uh-oh, I better turn around and go that way. We can't step off the cliff and say it's the devil's fault. You didn't want to hear that. It's all right. Two of you did. God has chosen to preserve us and protect us through the application of our faith to everyday life. Look, James answers the objector. He answers this imaginary person in verse 20. How foolish. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Faith that is not applied is useless. The only thing that gives our faith value is our willingness to apply it to our everyday life, to do something with what we believe. If we don't, it's of no value to us. We're the same as someone who does not believe. Skip down, and then James goes into a couple of Old Testament examples of people we remember because of what they did, not because of what they believed, but because of what they did, Abraham and Rahab. You read that sometime for yourself. Skip down to verse 26 where James says, Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without works. I don't have time. It's your good luck. It's your good fortune this morning. No, no, let's do it anyway. Turn over to Ephesians, just real quick. I very seldom do this. 